Hey everybody, this is Mike with a quick little introduction. So this is the infamous cursed episode. So it's the one I've been working on since the very beginning and when I finally got it all finished and perfect and nice and neat, I lost some data due to some corrupted files. So at some points in this episode, the sound are, is going to drop out and it's basically just gonna drop from stereo to mono. So if you're listening through a phone, it shouldn't be too noticeable. You might just have to turn up your volume. However, if you're listening in a car or your iPod if you have an old janky iPod or headphones you might notice some dropouts so just be aware of that thank you for listening and let's get into it hello this is Mike and welcome to another episode of urban legends and mythology so I'm going to start out with a story today and this story actually takes place a few years ago back when I was living out in the Hawking Hills with my ex-wife now for context if you don't know the Hawking Hills is this beautiful area in southeastern Ohio. It's kind of where the glaciated part of Ohio kind of meets that unglaciated part, and those are the foothills of Appalachia and in Hawking County and other counties throughout southeastern Ohio. They're colloquially known as the Hawking Hills, and they are actually a worldwide tourist destination. And I've pretty much lived there or near there for most of my life. But in Hawking County, which is kind of the heartland of this area, was where my ex-wife and I lived for a long time on this beautiful piece of property. Now, to say this was rural, like, it was pretty far out there, you know. I had to commute like 45 minutes every day to get to work on a good day. But, you know, it was one of those deals I couldn't pass up. We essentially lived in the house for free because her parents owned the property and that was just kind of their spare house. And what was cool about this house was, since it was kind of dead in the center of the property, we were completely surrounded by woods on all sides, so it was pretty awesome. And actually, the front of the house actually faced away from the front of the property. It faced towards the woods. So, like, my front yard was just 40 acres of woods, which just then butted up against the neighbor's back, I think, 40 or 100 or how many acres they had. I never really figured that out. But I said all that because that's where the story takes place. So in front of the house there was this trailhead and then it led down into a valley and then up a hill and then into another valley. And then on the top of the hill in the next valley was the property line. And it was in the second valley, it was this beautiful little piece of property. And it was awesome because it was kind of untouched by man since they had replanted the forest in the 50s. And it was in the second valley where there was just this area that was kind of just completely surrounded by hills and forests on all sides where you couldn't see any of the houses you couldn't hear any of the noises from like the driveway or the road nearby you could be completely isolated and alone with nature out of cell phone range out of wi-fi range and it was just so peaceful i loved going back there and it was so beautiful every time of the year so the last time i ever went back there i was actually there with my corgi taco when she was still a puppy this was the summer before M and I decided to get divorced. So I'm kind of just sitting back there enjoying the day while Taco is like eating a pine cone and like chasing squirrels and stuff. And I'm just kind of sitting there on a tree stump just watching Taco do her thing when all of a sudden I smell this horrible smell. And out of the woods, out of nowhere seemingly, this big dude, he's like huge. He's like six, seven feet tall and he looks like he's like 400 pounds. He comes and he sits down next to me. And I'm so caught off guard that I don't even think to grab my 38, which I usually would take out there to kind of scare off Coyote if one would get too close. So he sits down next to me 
me, and that's when I realized this dude is completely covered in hair, and I'm still just kind of sitting there in a state of shock, kind of frozen. I'm like, who is this big, giant, hairy dude, and how did he get onto this property, and how did I not even notice him until he came and sat down next to me? And then suddenly, he just kind of reaches across, grabs one of my beers, he grabs one of my delicious Brewdog Elvis Juice Grapefruit-infused IPAs, cracks it and says hey there mike my name's bigfoot and nobody's ever going to believe this story yep you've asked for it and you've waited for it for three seasons and it's finally here the infamous bigfoot episode and maybe now that i'm doing this episode y'all might go back and actually listen to some of that american cryptid stuff which y'all said you wanted but none of you actually listened to. My Skunk Ape episode is one of my least listened to episodes, so I don't know what's going on with that. But here it is, Bigfoot. And just like always, let's start at the beginning. So in 1974, there's this guy named Bob Chandler, and he lives kind of in that St. Louis area. And he was a former construction worker and an off-road enthusiast. And in 1975, he begins racing these pickup trucks. And he's racing, and they're racing in mud holes and on dirt tracks, and it's really awesome and fun but doing this is really hard on the chassis and on the suspension of this old Ford F-250 it was actually 1974 F-250 but at this time there are no real shops around that can do the modifications to this truck and fits the damage that you know he needs fixed so he decides to take the matter into his own hands so him and his wife they open this like custom four-wheel drive performance shop and he starts modifying this Ford F-250. And by 1979, he replaces the entire underassembly of the truck with one from a military surplus top loader, which features four-wheel drive and four-wheel steering. And that F-250 goes on to be the legendary car-crushing machine known as Bigfoot, the first monster truck. And I know what you're saying, what the hell does this have to do with Bigfoot? Well, nothing. I just really wanted to tell that story because it's awesome. But okay, now let's start at the beginning. So Bigfoot. Bigfoot is this bipedal ape-like possible human-ape hybrid missing link type cryptid. He exists pretty much all over the world. However, he's most prevalent in northwestern America and northwestern Canada and even into parts of Alaska. And his story does go back as far as humanity itself. And it's in this murky pre-dawn of mankind where our story truly begins. So I'm actually going to start at around 100,000 years ago. And the reason I'm starting here is because it is around this time when modern man, Homo sapiens sapien, which is us, really starts emerging out of Africa. And what a lot of people forget is we weren't the only human species on this planet at the time. We're actually a very late comer because hominids, it's where we get the homo part of homo sapien, have been around on this planet for a very, very long time. We were sharing the earth at this time with various other species within the homo group and various other offshoots and branches of this same family. Not to mention all the other species and plants and animals and stuff that we're sharing this planet with. It's an enormous list. And yes, I'm even going to include other 
other primates in that list because Bigfoot is one of these other primates. And it's in this kind of murky prehistory where these stories, these legends, these tales, these myths, this idea of these other people these wild men come up and humans are a little different than a lot of other let's just say primate species because for one we tend to have evolved to work together in groups and two we are extremely predatory and i think part of that is because we were competing with these other groups for the same resources at the time which most likely led to their ultimate extinctions or absorptions into our species but i'm kind of off on a little tangent here what i'm basically getting at is there was a time in history where we shared the earth with various other primate creatures and it's from this shared history where this idea of this wild man or Bigfoot may have arisen from. And it makes sense that tales of wild men would show up in our culture because we kind of have this weird indoctored instinct towards anything that looks like us, and I'll explain this. So if you've ever seen like a robot or a doll or an animation that looks a little too closely human and you get that like uncomfortable feeling, almost like a fight or flight type feeling, well a lot of scientists believe that there's a reason for that feeling and it's actually cultural and it's the fact that since we did share our earth with other creatures and we were competing for the same resources that we developed this natural instinctual fear or hatred for anything that looks like us or looks too closely to us when we know that it's not actually us. And this would make sense, like, especially back when we were living in small groups, because some of these other species we could interbreed with, particularly Neanderthals and Denisovians. And it was actually the threat of having your females kidnapped by one of these other groups and having your genetics, let's just say, watered down by them, which probably led to these earliest stories of these wild men who we should avoid or destroy at all costs. So it's literally a genetic thing. So the earliest tales of, hey, stay close to the group, there are wild men out in the forest, could have led to some of the earliest tales of a Bigfoot-like creature. Especially if you're wandering around one day and you come across a Neanderthal who's almost human but not quite human, that could have led to some of the tales which would probably evolved into what would become Bigfoot. And in this particular case, in this story, I'm primarily going to focus on East Asia and America because this is where the Bigfoot myth really kind of kicks off. And if you recall from my Yeti episode, that episode really dives into how those oral folklores go back into what we just discussed with sharing the resources, sharing the land with these possible other humans. And the thing with oral histories is, for the most part, they stay pretty much intact. And as we know, it's the East Asians who, these ancient East Asians, who are the ancestors of those who are living in Beringia, who eventually 
migrate over to the Americas, they most likely brought these ancient stories with them, especially the stories that would have evolved into the stories of the modern Yeti. I personally believe that both of these folklores, the folklore of the Yeti and the folklore of Bigfoot, have a common ancestral link. And that link probably stretches back almost 100,000 years. And I think that's where at least the oral history of the whole thing comes from today. And yeah, that's great. Oral history is fascinating and I love it because oral history is what gives us our modern folklore. But we're not here for that. We're here to actually talk about Bigfoot from a cryptozoological standpoint. However, I wanted to get the folklore and the oral history part of it out of the way first so I can deep dive into the subject at hand. So let's just ask a very general question. What is Bigfoot? Well, a lot of people will tell you that Bigfoot is the missing link. He's the ape man. And yeah, that's the very dumbed down, unscientific version of it if you don't understand how, I don't know, evolution works. And there's a lot of debate back and forth whether or not he would fit in with Homo or if he would fit in more with like Gorilla or some other form of large ape because while yes we are closely related we're not that closely related. So for all you people out there who dispute evolution because you think that it says that your ancestor came from a chimp or a gorilla or whatever when you make that argument you're just proving how dumb you are. You're not actually using a logical argument there because it does not say that anywhere in evolution. So that bears the question. Does he fit in more with gorilla or does he fit in with humans? Personally, I think he fits in more with a human. And that's just simply because there are no great apes in America. There never have been. Furthermore, we see from the evidence that the way that he walks and carries himself is very human-like. It's not really ape-like. And a lot of large apes, like large gorillas and stuff, the larger you get, they're generally knuckle walkers. And there's never been any evidence to suggest that Bigfoot's a knuckle walker. But I think where a lot of the people come from the idea that he's like an ape man or a gorilla or some kind of ape is in the fact that he's just simply covered in hair and in some depictions he has large canines. And probably even to a lesser extent due to the fact that he doesn't seem to have a concept to harness fire or a concept of tools. But then again, not all hominids had fire or used tools. A lot of them did, but there are some offshoots where they probably didn't. And I think when you take into the account the folkloric history, it has to be some kind of human offshoot. Because simply being covered in hair or being really tall doesn't just necessarily make you an ape. You could still be a human or an offshoot of a human and be really tall and have a ton of hair. I mean, have you ever met a wook or just like a hobo who's like never shaved? Like, those people are covered in hair. So I'm convinced that Bigfoot is some kind of offshoot of human, some kind of human variant. And I'll stand by that just because I don't see any ape-like evidence to suggest that he's from like gorilla or whatever chimpanzees called or any of the other great apes. So most common depictions of Bigfoot describe him as being roughly 1.8 to 2.7 meters or in freedom units here in the United States, 6 to 9 feet, with the sum as tall as 3 to 4.6 meters or 10 to 15 feet. However, the 6 to 7 foot variant seems to be the most common. They normally have black to brown to reddish brown hair, depending on what variant you're speaking of. They have very broad shoulders, no real visible neck, and 
the face always seems to look more human than ape-like. But the number one characteristic that everybody seems to agree on is the size of his feet. Normally, they're as large as 610 millimeters or 24 freedom inches long and 200 millimeters or 8 inches wide. And you know what they say about big feet? If he wears shoes, those shoes must be huge. And when you do look at plaster molds of these feet, they do look human-like. They don't look like the type of feet you would find on like a gorilla or a chimpanzee or something like that. Now, the main problem with Bigfoot is he's so isolated. These family groups of these big feet or Bigfoot, I don't know. They're so isolated that we don't have any actual physical evidence of their existence. So we don't really know what to classify him as. And furthermore, we don't have any specimens that we can study. And a lot of people will say, okay, well, that's just proof that he doesn't exist. And I want to remind people that that's absolutely not proof that he doesn't exist. We discover new species on this earth every single day. In fact, I'm going to Google something real quick. So I just typed into Google how many new species were identified in the last year with data. And it showed in 2020, it's the last year I have data, 503 new species were identified, including a monkey species. The monkey species found was found on the extinct Mount Popa volcano in Myanmar, or Burma for us Americans, and it's called the Popa Langur. There are only about 200 to maybe 260 left in the wild, but there's a whole monkey species right there that nobody had previously ever heard of or classified found in a well-known area. And also in 2020 alone, as well as 70 species of bees and wasps were identified, 51 new species of snails, 9 new species of, of moths, 6 new species of centipedes, 9 flatworms, 1 butterfly, and a crested lizard from Borneo, as well as 2 new species of snakes. And that doesn't even get into all the new fossil species that were discovered that year. And that's just one year. So no, when a scientist says that it doesn't exist because we don't have any physical evidence of it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't exist. It just means we don't have any necessary evidence to show that it exists. Because as I said before, this world is vast and mysterious and there are plenty of places that humans still have not stepped foot in. So there's no real way that we can empirically say no, especially when there are folk tales of sightings of these things for thousands of years and it's some of those sightings I want to get into now. So according to the website Live Science, which is a science news website that publishes stories on topics like space and animals and health and archaeology and human behavior and earth and all that fun stuff, there have been over 10,000 reported Bigfoot sightings in the continental United States with reports from every state except for the island of Hawaii. But I'm sure if Bigfoot were able to get through airport security, he would show up in Hawaii because why wouldn't he? Hawaii's awesome. And one third of these sightings have been in the Pacific Northwest with the remaining two-thirds being kind of evenly spread out throughout the rest of North America. And I think this is because the Pacific Northwest with its mostly wild, untamed, untouched forests and its vast swaths of uninhabited land is the perfect hiding place for a family group of Bigfoots to be hanging out. But for our first little tale, we're going to go to the Thule River Indian Reservation in California. There was a tribe there called the Yokuts. 
and at a site called Painted Rock, they actually depicted a group of Bigfoot called the Family. The local tribespeople called the largest of the glyphs Hairy Man, and these glyphs are estimated to be between 500 and 1,000 years old. And moving forward in time, we get into the 16th century when the Mexicans were kind of conquering, you know, kind of north of the Rio Grande, and they would tell tales of Los Vigilantes Oscuras, also known as Dark Watchers. They were large creatures which are alleged to stalk their camps at night. And they kind of have a folkloric commonality with a lot of these kind of native Bigfoot myths that were in the area. And even further north around the Great Lakes area where the Iroquois were, they actually tell tale of an aggressive hair-covered giant with rock-hard skin known as the Otnuyarha or stone giant. And even the infamous Theodore Roosevelt, who would later go on to be the president of the United States, one of our greatest presidents of all time, and I should actually do an episode on him just because he is an awesome man filled with legend. He actually writes in his 1893 book, The Wilderness Hunter, of a story he was told by an elderly mountain man named Bonham. So Bonham was out beaver trapping with this companion of his, and they were being stalked by a, quote, foul-smelling bipedal creature who ransacked their beaver trapping camp, stalked him, and eventually became hostile. It eventually ended up breaking his companion's neck and then runs off to the forest. And, you know, he's telling the story to Teddy Roosevelt when they're kind of hanging out on one of Teddy's famous out west trips. And Teddy, at first, he says, well, he's of German ancestry, and for some reason that myth is in their culture and kind of discounts it. However, Teddy would go on to have his own Bigfoot encounter so he's on one of his famous out west big game hunting trips. You know, he liked to go out and hunt bison and whatever other big giant animals live out west. I don't actually know. Uh, jackalopes. We'll say jackalopes. So he's out and he's jackalope hunting with all these guys. And there's this little like shack nearby. And one night they awake to this. You know, there's this banging on the side of the cabin and they're looking around and they're like what could it be what could it be and the banging keeps coming and they look out and they see these big giant hairy dudes like seven eight feet tall and they're hurling rocks at this cabin and they're hooting and hollering and trashing the campsite and just going on like crazy and this goes on all night but luckily Teddy and his other guys they just kind of hunkered down in the cabin and had a very sleepless night that night but old Teddy he's one of the toughest dudes ever so he's just like unscathed about it and he's like well that was interesting I'm gonna write that down I mean this was one tough dude I mean this is the guy who kept football from being outlawed in the early days where they actually met at the White House because football before in the early days you weren't allowed to do a forward pass you could only do laterals you know it was basically like a straight rushing game it was a lot like rugby in a way however like they were going to outlaw it because it was being played on these college campuses by like you know people at Yale and Harvard and like OU where I went to they were starting it out and 
people were dying on the field from head injuries mostly. So there was these groups who wanted to like ban football and Teddy Roosevelt and all the football players and stuff, they were like, well, no, we're not going to ban it. We're just going to modify it to make it a little safer. And they introduced the forward pass. Now, a lot of people at the time said, oh, you can't introduce the forward pass. You're going to ruin football. What are you doing? He's like, do you want football or don't you? Because football's awesome. What are you going to do? Watch fucking baseball? Baseball's boring. But yeah, that was Teddy Roosevelt. He was awesome. I mean, there's a reason why he's on Mount Rushmore. He was one of our truly greatest presidents, and we really need a president like him today, but I digress. So let's get back to Bigfoot. So this really brings us into the modern day sightings of Bigfoot. Now modern day sightings of Bigfoot are fairly common. There's actually a website that's a database. If you just type Bigfoot into Google, it's one of the first websites that pop up. And it's literally just a database of every sighting you can see all the way back through. I don't know how far it goes back. I think it goes all the way back to the earliest histories that they can find. However, that site is still being updated today. Hell, I think the latest update was just a month or two ago. And there are thousands and thousands of sightings across America and Canada, which tells us that there are several healthy breeding populations out there. So the most famous evidence we get from the modern day is actually called the Patterson-Gimlin film, and if you've seen anything about Bigfoot in your life, you've seen that film. It's that iconic film where Bigfoot's kind of crossing this, like, creek, and she kind of looks back and glances and then kind of walks off into the woods. And yes, I did say she, this Bigfoot, was thought to be a female. And the reason why this film is so famous is because no matter how many people have attempted to debunk it, it has never been debunked. And for context right now, I'm going to go through every detail about this film and explain to you exactly why it's never been debunked. So to put it bluntly, the Patterson-Gimlin film is an American short motion picture of an unidentified subject that the filmmakers have said was Bigfoot. The footage was shot in 1967 in Northern California and has since then been subjected to many attempts to authenticate or debunk it. So to get an idea of where we're at in the world right now, I'm going to give you the exact point on the planet Earth where this encounter took place. This iconic footage was filmed alongside Bluff Creek, which is a tributary of the Klamath River, about 25 logging road miles or 40 kilometers northwest of Orleans, California in Del Norte County on the Sitz River's National Forest. The site is roughly 38 miles or 60 kilometers south of Oregon and 18 freedoms or 30 kilometers east of the Pacific Ocean. And at the time it was kind of this dried up creek bed in the middle of nowhere that was great for riding horses around or whatever. Now the film itself was on Kodachrome 2 film and it was filmed on a Sin Kodak K100 camera and it had a variable speed. It could go from 16 up to 64 frames per second. This was a 16 millimeter camera so that was kind of the default however and this is very important it actually at the 16 little notch it actually went at 18 frames per second this comes up later additionally the film is 23.85 feet or 7.27 meters long preceded by 76.15 feet or 23.21 meters of horseback footage has 954 frames and runs at 59 seconds at 16 frames per second. However, with this camera, it was probably running at 18 frames per second. That's just kind of how the camera functioned. The event lasted 53 seconds at the 18 frames per second. And the date of this was on October 20th, 1969. So film analysis aside, let's get into who the film 
filmmakers were. So Patterson, he's kind of our main character here. He was actually an avid Bigfoot enthusiast. He became interested in Bigfoot in 1959 and he actually went on to write a book about Bigfoot and he was wanting to create kind of like a little pseudo documentary or docudrama about Bigfoot. It was essentially going to be like a cowboy movie about some cowboys who were being led by an old miner and a wise Indian tracker to find Bigfoot and that's basically the story it's pretty simple which is kind of why he had this camera he was kind of an amateur filmmaker and when I say amateur he was an amateur at best he didn't really have those honed in skills of editing and script writing and costume design and everything that goes into creating a film kind of much like how I'm an amateur podcaster but hey we all start somewhere right now I mentioned this because a lot of people point to the fact that okay he's a Bigfoot enthusiast he wrote a book about Bigfoot at his own expense, he lectures about Bigfoot, and he's kind of making this amateur film about Bigfoot. So they say, of course he's going to find Bigfoot out in the wild, it's obviously fake. But that isn't quite true when you look at the evidence and stack it up, which we'll get into. For one, he's such an amateur filmmaker, he doesn't know how to fake the footage. His whole idea of the Bigfoot thing was to like go to a prop house in Hollywood and like buy or borrow like a gorilla costume. You know, he didn't know how to like fake this Bigfoot footage and it shows in the film. And for context he's just a rodeo rider and they were actually amateur boxers too. They were huh, they were local champions in their in their weight class. That's cool. But what I mean is they have no background in the film industry. They don't know how to edit. They don't know how to splice film. They don't know costume design and to be honest when you dive into the details of the film you know this isn't just some cheap ape suit which like I said we'll get into later but the point is they didn't have the talent to fake this footage but I digress so let's get back into the actual experience on this day October 20th 1967 so that morning they take Gimlin's truck up to the Sitz Rivers National Forest in Northern California they were carrying provisions three horses and Patterson chose the area because of intermittent reports of the creatures in the past and of their enormous footprints which apparently were found around 1958 so they're heading there they're gonna go ride horses and hopefully see a Bigfoot. So in the early afternoon they were riding their horses generally northeast upstream on horseback along the east bank of Bluff Creek. And at some time between 115 and 140 they came to an overturned tree with a large root system at the turn of the creek almost as high as a room. When they rounded it there was a log jam a crow's nest left over from the flood of 64 and when they spotted the figure behind it nearly simultaneously it was either crouched beside the creek to their left or standing there on the opposite bank. Gimlin himself described it as in a mild state of shock. Now Patterson initially estimated its height to be at least somewhere between 6 foot 6 inches to 7 feet or 1.9 to 2.1 meters and later raised his estimate to about 7 feet 6 inches to 2.29 meters. Gimlin's estimate was also about 6 foot 6 foot 6 somewhere in there. 
And then we get to the film itself. The film itself shows what Patterson and Goodman claim was a large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short silvery brown or dark reddish hair covering most of the body, including its prominent breasts. So it was a female. And a lot of people today will say that that Bigfoot was a female, which was probably why it wasn't really aggressive. That's just a hypothesis, though. So Patterson estimated he was about 25 feet away from the creature at its closest, and he said that his horse reared upon sensing the figure. He spent about 20 seconds trying to get out of the saddle and just calm his horse down. And then you can see it in the video, he kind of takes off after he crosses the creek. And this isn't heard in the video because it's just 16 millimeter film without audio, but he yells back to Gimlin, cover me Gimlin, meaning get his rifle ready in case this thing attacks him. And then Gimlin kind of follows him across the street on horseback while he takes his rifle out. He never actually aims it at the creature, which is probably a smart move. So the figure had actually walked away from them to a distance of about 120, 120 feet or 37 meters before Patterson begins to run after it. The film was about 59.9 seconds long at 16 FPS, and it's initially quite shaky until Patterson gets about 80 feet from the creature, at which point the creature does that iconic turn that kind of looks over its shoulder at Patterson before kind of wandering off. And then on frame 352, we see that iconic look back where he looks back or she looks back over his shoulder at Patterson. And Patterson says that she kind of had this look of like disgust on her face. After which the creature moves into a grove of trees for 14 seconds and then reappears in the final 15 seconds of the film after Patterson moved 10 feet or 3 meters to a better vantage point. After fading into the trees again, being lost to view at a distance of 265 feet or 81 meters as the reel of the film ran out. So after this, Gimlin, he follows it on horseback, keeping his distance until it disappeared around a bend in the road about 300 yards away. Patterson calls him back at that point because he's feeling vulnerable. He's on foot without a rifle because he feared the creature's mate might approach and you know, the mate's probably some, like, big dude Sasquatch who's probably not going to be happy that you're encroaching on his territory. However, that never happens. Um, they say the whole encounter takes place over about two minutes. After this, the two gather up Patterson's horses because they kind of wandered off downstream. And from his saddlebag, he grabs another reel of film. And they start to film the tracks. And they tracked them for, like, three miles but lost it in heavy undergrowth. So they went to the campsite about four miles south, picked up plaster, and returned turned to the initial site and measured the creature's step length and made two plaster casts of each of the best quality left and right prints. So after this, they get their film developed as quickly as possible and they're reaching out to all these other Bigfoot researchers going, we finally got proof, we finally got proof, it's really exciting and stuff. And then the naysayers come out and like anything, there's always naysayers. They're saying it's a hoax, it's a fraud, the stories don't match up exactly, it's a guy in a monkey suit, what are you like screwing with us? Come on. They're saying we know you're a Bigfoot enthusiast who wants to create some pseudo-documentary about Bigfoot anyway, and you're just trying to prove that Bigfoot exists, so, you know, it's all fake. But here's the thing, he was later submitted to a polygraph test, and yes, we all know polygraph tests are pseudoscience, but he actually passed that polygraph test, which is actually kind of a feather in his cap. Because while they are pseudoscience and polygraph results are inadmissible in court, I can go into a whole thing about polygraphs, but they're kind of hard to beat 
to be honest. And he maintained to his dying day, and I think it was the 70s, that he did not fake that footage or hoax that footage. And I don't believe he did, because, like I said, for one, he's an amateur filmmaker at best. He has no knowledge of how to hoax something like that. And two, that film has been scrutinized for over 40 years now, and I'm going to get into that scrutiny now, because the scrutiny tells me that there's no way they faked this film. Now, first we have to discuss the film speed, and these cameras that he was using, it was a Kodak K100 camera, and it had a dial going from 16, 24, 32, 48, and 64 frames per second. And this is kind of important because a primatologist who viewed this film claimed that if the movie was filmed at a 24 frame rate, then the creature's walk cannot be distinguished from a normal human. But if it was filmed at the 16 frame rate, there were a number of important respects in which it's quite unlike a man's gait. And to be honest, a lot of people argue was it filmed at 16 frames per second or 24 frames per second because there are people in the 24 frames per second camp and people in the 16 frames per second camp. And depending on that camp, you can discern whether or not this creature is human or not. And a lot of people in that 24 FPS camp think that it's just a guy in a monkey suit. But here's the problem with that hypothesis. You can clearly tell it's not a guy in a monkey suit because this has been studied by visual effects artists from Disney to Hollywood. And they will tell you at the time that that costuming technology didn't exist in 1967. So in one of these examples, they actually showed it to the head of the special effects department at Universal Studios, and their conclusion was, and quote, we could try faking it, but we would have to create a completely new system of artificial muscles and find an actor who could be trained to walk like that. It might be done, but we would have to say that it would almost be impossible. It was even shown to Disney executive Kim Peterson, who said, said that their technicians would never be able to duplicate that film. And even furthermore, Walt Disney Studios in 1972 their chief of animation and four of his assistants viewed Patterson's footage and praised it as a beautiful piece of work, although they said it had to have been shot in the studio. And when they were told that it had been shot in the woods in Northern California, they just shook their heads and walked away because they were like, that's impossible. Now, I'm reminding you, these are experts in the film industry, like people that do this for a living versus some amateurs 16 millimeter little film out in the woods. And there were also some prominent Hollywood special effects and makeup artists who got in on this too. Bill Munns, who was known for his groundbreaking ape suits on 2001 A Space Odyssey, he stated that the film depicts a non-human animal, not a man in a fursuit. And he proposed a diagnostic test of authenticity at the armpit. It was a natural concave skin fold versus an artificial vertical crease. The skin fold would be real and the vertical crease would be faked. Another one, Ellis Berman of Berman Studios in Hollywood. They create all kinds of like strange creatures and stuff. He even created a fake Bigfoot for a traveling punk carnival exhibit. He denied the company created it for Patterson and said that he could not duplicate it for anything less than $10,000 because I guess there was this idea that he had created it for Patterson. He said, nah, it would be too expensive. And even John Chambers, who's an Academy Award award-winning monster maker. He produced the flexible masks and the original Planet of the Apes. In an interview, he even stated that if that is a man in a suit, that's no ordinary suit. It must be tailor-made 
by someone who is that tall and that big, who could walk like that, who had had been trained to walk like that. And furthermore, that suit would have had been specially made to complement that walking gait. And the walking gait gets scrutinized too, because various entities over the years have tried to scientifically recreate that walking gait. And they said, while it's possible, it would take hours upon hours to recreate that walking gait. So that film is probably the most famous sighting of Bigfoot in modern history. And it's that film footage and all the propaganda around it and the books and everything that comes out afterwards which really launches Bigfoot into our modern era. And while there are still sightings that go on to this day, hell, there are hundreds if not thousands of sightings a year, that one is really the big dog one that we all think about when we think about Bigfoot. And we can ask ourselves now, okay, so if Bigfoot exists, if there's this breeding group of Bigfoots out there, where are they? I want to go squanching. I want to see a Bigfoot. Where do I go? Well, pretty much anywhere there's woods because that's where they predominantly are. Or hell, if you're driving around the highway in Florida, there have been cases where they just jump up on the side of your car. And then you might ask, well, if they're such big creatures and even if they're living in small breeding groups, how come I've never seen one? And I would retort with this question, how often do you go into the woods and you see the breeding group of deer that are around? I knew there were coyote living behind my house and I never actually saw more than one or two at a time and that was only when they would come in close to the house. It's because they're good at hiding. Most creatures in the woods, when they see or hear a human or smell a human, they tend to run off in the opposite direction and hide. That's just a natural instinct because we're predators and they're prey. And you might go on to say, well, what about fossil evidence or physical evidence? And physical evidence doesn't really last very long in woods. If I were to go out into the woods and die tomorrow, there wouldn't be much physical evidence of me left after about a week or so because vultures pick at it, the bones get scattered around, they decompose, leaves fall, plants grow around, the soil rises, and you gradually get buried. I mean, if those natural processes didn't exist, we'd be tripping over bones every time we walked into the woods. So yeah, I personally believe that there is the possibility of some Bigfoot-like creature or several Bigfoot-like creatures out there. You know why? Because there's just too much folklore and too many sightings, and you can't discount every one of those sightings as a misidentification of a bear. And furthermore, it's like I said, when you're walking into the woods, how many animals do you see every day? I'm sure these things are adapted well to hiding from us, and, you know, they live in these very remote areas generally. You know, how often do you go into the forests of the Pacific Northwest? You know how many people pretty much live there? Like four, over an area of like a million square miles. So why wouldn't something like a Bigfoot be up there? There's nobody competing for the resources. But do I believe it so passionately that I'm going to go squanching in my own backyard? Well, no. I mean, unless I'm drunk. And if I had a backyard again, I'm living in an apartment right now on the second floor. I don't have much of a backyard. But I think the main reason I wouldn't go is because what the hell would I do if a Bigfoot just came out of the woods and sat down next to me and stole my beer? You know, I'd probably just sit there frozen looking at them like I said in that story I made up. And I probably wouldn't want to go with some of these like squanchers who do it for like a living go on TV and stuff because they're usually like trying to attract these Bigfoots with mating calls. And every time I see that I just think what are you gonna do when a big seven foot 400 pound hairy creature comes storming out of the woods with a raging heart on wanting to get him some and he runs into you. He's not gonna be happy sitting there with blue balls and some guy with some 
some audio equipment when he thinks he's gonna go see him a Mrs. Sasquatch. I bet if that ever does happen, they better pray they got some beef jerky around or something to calm him down, because otherwise one of those guys is gonna end up being Mrs. Sasquatch, if you know what I mean. But what about, like, Bigfoot today? What about, how does he exist in our modern folklore, our modern lexicon? Well, he exists in a variety of ways. Bigfoot has had an enormous impact on our popular culture, and it's said that he's even up there with Michael Jordan as a cultural icon. In fact, one in ten Americans believe that he exists, which is crazy. You can't get one in ten Americans to agree on anything, let alone believe in something. Hell, half our country still thinks that the last election was rigged, when America has time and time again proven to have some of the safest elections in the world. But I digress. But Sasquatch is everywhere in our culture. Hell, October 20th is National Sasquatch Awareness Day. He's appeared in books, film, television, sports teams, mascots. He's everywhere. Hell, their entire B-horror movie franchise is dedicated to him. And I've actually watched those, and they're awesome. Even here in the Hawking Hills, we have Sasquatch imagery everywhere. Hell, in Logan, where I live just up the road from, I'm in Lancaster, but down in Logan, you can go into the Walmart, and they have, like, Sasquatch t-shirts. Like, they say things like hide-and-seek world champion and have a picture of Sasquatch on them, or my ex-wife actually has has a hoodie that says Bigfoot saw me but nobody believes him. So while the species may be endangered, his likeness is alive and well in our culture. And it even affects state and local laws sometimes. Florida has a law in their state house that, you know, basically punishes you for attacking anthropods or human-like creatures. And in the state of Washington, as far back as 1969, a law was passed making killing Bigfoot punishable by a felony conviction resulting in a monetary fine up to $10,000 or five years imprisonment. And there are even places around the United States that are considered Sasquatch or Bigfoot refuges, and you cannot hunt them there. Except in Oklahoma, in 2021, a representative named Justin Humphrey, he proposed an official Bigfoot hunting season in Oklahoma and indicated that the Wildlife Commission would regulate permits and the state would offer a $3 million bounty if such a creature was captured alive and unharmed. So who wants to go to Oklahoma and make $3 million on a drunken squanchin trip because I'm in? But what is it about Bigfoot that fascinates us today? What took it from being an ancient folkloric tale to being ridiculed as something out there that only weirdos believe in to being such a cultural icon? I personally think it has something to do with human nature and that desire to find something that is human that we share our planet with that isn't quite human. And I think that falls into the same realm as to why we seek out alien life. We want to know that we're not alone in this universe, and we want to know that we're not alone on this planet. Because cycling back to the beginning, back when we were first evolving as a species, we weren't alone on this planet. There were other human variants on this planet. And we essentially outcompeted them, out-evolved them, outbred them. You know, we won, and we became the sole inhabitor at the 
top of this hierarchy and I think something deep inside us kind of yearns for that like a return to that you know we did share this planet with other human variants and we wiped them out and now we're alone and we think we're alone in this universe which is why I guess we seek out aliens or cryptids or Bigfoot or whatever and I think furthermore it just says something about human curiosity we always want to know what's around the corner what's in those dark spaces and searching for things like Bigfoot and even Nessie and aliens and all this other stuff ghosts it gives us something to search for and it just gives us new things to learn about and with that being said that's all I really have on this subject today I do thank you for listening once again this is Mike this is Urban Legends and Mythologies and if you like what I'm doing like always I just ask that you tell a friend maybe introduce somebody new to this podcast and yes I know this episode was a long time in the making it was one of the first fan requested episodes and yes to be honest it doesn't really hold up to my expectations of how great it could be but it is the best I can do with the equipment and the information and all that stuff that I have right now and the time crunches I'm on but I hope you at least enjoyed it and got something out of it and this isn't the end of the American Cryptid stuff I have stuff for that going through season 9 and yes I have it planned out through season 9 now season 9 is not going to be fan requested everything before that is I'm going back to my ideas on season 9 because y'all got some crazy ideas I'm scheduled every week for the next 3 years to talk about one of your crazy ideas that you sent me and while I love that and appreciate it. My god, it is a lot of work. However, if you do want to help out, you can always donate to the channel. You can share it, grow the audience, grow the Death Bunny Squad. It's growing every day. Hopefully it'll grow even further and maybe in the future I can get some like assistance around here so it's not just a one-man show with me doing all the work by myself. That would be awesome. However, I do thank you for listening. Once again, this is Mike. This is Urban Legends and Mythology, and I'll see you in the next episode.